Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Darcy McNally is Director of the Oncology Support Services and Community Outreach for the Lynn Cancer Institute in Boca Raton, Florida. She kindly talks to us today about what can be a very trying time for both patients and their families. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. This is a very large topic and encompasses so much of one's own life, philosophy, religious, philosophic, and medical component. Let's talk a bit more specifically about what you do. What is your sense about the differences between the people who come to you, those who are referred to you, and to the best of your knowledge, those who never come to you, if they all have cancer, who are those that are knocking on your doors and who are those that are not? Great question. And it actually, I think, kind of ends up being a bit of a three-pronged answer. At our programs, one piece of being an accredited cancer center is that we have our patients fill out what we call a distress screening form. The form asks different questions from practical concerns and emotional concerns and physical concerns and nutritional issues. This form ends up being kind of like our launching point from oncology social work team to be triggered and to triage to the appropriate disciplines. And although it's not mandatory, our goal in our department is to try to meet every new patient at the beginning of a treatment to assess them as well as to provide them with the overview of the programs and the services available. There are some patients that end up using our Dr. Google to learn and come in ready to access and utilize everything and anything that can help them, body, mind, and spirit. But then there are some patients at the beginning that may not be ready to utilize any of these resources, or they're so shell-shocked at the beginning when we initially meet with them that they forget all the different things that are available. Sometimes in these instances, a doctor or a nurse or another staff member can always send a referral to our team, and then we will then reach out to them and meet with them. And then depending upon the patient's needs and concerns, they may begin with some supportive counseling on coping with the diagnosis, or if their needs are outside of the scope of what we provide, we refer to professionals in our community. And then, of course, your last piece of the question was, who doesn't get involved? I guess if I'm being transparent, our goal is to actually capture 100% of the people, but sometimes we do miss people. And then sometimes there are also those patients who just want to get into the center and get out ASAP. They don't want to have any part of their identity associated with cancer and just choose what they want to do just to get their treatment done, and that's it. To summarize, a long-winded summary would be that each person's experience and desire to engage is unique and everyone to know what's available, but in the end, it is their self-determination or the patient's choice on what they choose to access. Unfortunately, many people with cancer do not survive. I need to preface it by saying, thank goodness, many do survive. We just cannot forget that. We just cannot. If you see a patient who has a better prognosis versus someone who has not such a good prognosis, is there a difference in approach? Because it would seem to me that the latter would be more of hospice-type services as opposed to support-type services. If someone knows that they're coming and they're going to die, ma'am, you only have a year left, you only have six months left, they need help. It's a completely different approach, or is it not a different approach? When you're in a cancer center, we provide services throughout the continuum of care. And as you just mentioned, there are people that go through treatment, they have a set amount of time and they're done. There are other people that might be diagnosed with a disease that now is considered chronic. It's not necessarily curable, but they can live a long time with it. And so we talk about hospice, we talk about palliative care. So again, there's been an evolution in cancer care where we are seeing advancements in treatment, which has allowed patients 
lives to live longer with cancer. So it's not just this defined thing, you have it and you're cured. There's a lot of people that just end up living with cancer the way you might live with a chronic illness like MS or something else. And we do provide that psychological support through the entire continuum of their care. We actually started a program back in 2010. There was a couple who lost their daughter to breast cancer up in Maryland. They lived down here and they wanted to find a way to provide services to people in a similar situation, meaning they had advanced disease, they wanted to take active treatment, but they weren't ready for hospice. And they felt that they were not the curative path and they didn't fit within the normal parameters of what they felt people thought of as cancer care. So we developed based upon her name, what we call the Cindy program here. And we hired a specialized licensed clinical social worker, helped those patients navigate their cancer care when it was in its advanced stage. And we provided support in the areas of advanced directives, working on legacy work, supporting their children or grandchildren, special metastatic disease support group, and one-on-one counseling. And since people entering this program at LCI had advanced disease, they were able to utilize this program for as long as they were on treatment. And when the patient then became ready to transition to hospice, we would help the patient and family adjust to this next phase. Another thing that we're pretty proud of recently is that we were able to add and embed into the programs here at LCI a separate support and symptom management program. It's actually called Classic. And it's very similar to what one would think of as palliative care. And so we hired a specialized physician that just spearheads this program. She's there to assist with some of those chronic challenging symptoms such as fatigue, nausea, pain, and we have a social worker there as well to provide the psychological support as it relates to coping with some of that symptom. And that program serves as a bridge until the patient's symptoms are eradicated or they may need to transition into a hospice-like facility. How is it funded? The hospital does provide a lot of our staffing through just general operations. If you're living in this area, you know that Boca Raton in general is an extremely philanthropic community, and we have been granted with very generous donors to grow our department and our program. We are able to provide the mental health support services, the nutrition services, our wellness programming at no charge to our patients. Many of the wellness programs, such as yoga and massage, are funded through our own arm of fundraising, which is called the League of Ribbons. We raise money each year. I host a 5K run, and I do different things to help raise money that becomes a straight pass through to underwrite some of the programs that we provide to our patients. Do you provide services to the families of the patients? So someone comes in, they have cancer, they are just, oh, what what would be a good one? They're rather stubborn and they don't want any help, those types of people, but the family does. Is your program set up that you could reach out to the family of the patients as long as the person is a patient? Absolutely, 100%. All of the supportive counseling is available to the patients as well as their family while they're on active treatment and up to one year post-treatment. We do often have times that an adult child or a spouse, or even if it's a very, very close friend but happens to be the primary caregiver, is really struggling or is wanting some tools and tips and coaching and just general support on how to help the person get through it, and we're available for that as well at no charge. Cancer, sadly, is not limited to larger population centers. Therefore, a lot of people who are treated live very far away from urban medical centers. How do people get this type of service, if it's at all available, when they live 50, 100 miles away from the hospital? Obviously, for us, we are very fortunate that we have this here. Maybe one of the great things about what the pandemic has given us, if you could say that, is that we've really noticed that technology has allowed us to be able to provide services virtually. Now with the internet, people can go onto websites and different organizations and find resources to connect, whether it's peer-to-peer or if it's groups that they can find online. Even for us, a lot of our counseling and other programming, everything now we can do via Zoom. So people can be 40, 50 miles away and still be able to Zoom in and feel connected.
I hope that we don't lose the ability to do that, especially when there are insurance programs involved, but that's subject for another day. Try and think about how I should say this. One of the things that led me to inviting you to talk, and again, most appreciative of what you do and the way you're approaching this, is that I am a recent cancer survivor. What I noticed as I went through this process was the initial thought of where did this come from? Don't smoke, I'm not around toxins to my knowledge, normal stress, how did I get cancer? And and when you use the term shell shock at the beginning of our discussion, there was a little bit of that. How do people, from what you see, is there a general sense that it's just bad luck or is there a desire to find something to blame? You know, I was always smoking. I lived downstream from a super fund or a ground field. Is that even an issue or is, is that just my particular style of looking at things? Oh, no. This is something that since the beginning of my career 27 years ago has been a constant question that I have heard, which makes sense. So I can only speak from my experience as a clinician. But I mean, I also think we as humans have a little bit of control freaks in terms of we want to know why. We always want to believe and pinpoint like the cause and effect so that we can rationalize, that we can make sense because suddenly something has happened to us that is out of our control. So if we can understand why, then we feel like maybe we have control again. For someone like you, even, for example, who consider themselves to have lived what may be considered a healthy lifestyle, it's even more difficult. For those patients who have lived a less than healthy lifestyle, maybe they did, did smoke or things of that nature. As clinicians, we work with them to help them to forgive themselves and realize that what is in their rearview mirror is behind them and they have to move forward. But for those people who I have patients or people in the community we know that are well in their 90s and they smoke and drink their whole lives and don't get cancer. And so we remind some of those people of that as well, that it's like throwing a dart. We don't always know. And we try to work on the present and what actions they can take now moving forward to regain their health and control. But again, for people that have lived what we might consider a very healthy lifestyle, still get cancer. I'm a frustrated or angry patient that might say, why did I bother? I remember a distinct story of a woman back in the day before all these newfangled diets. She was really into the whole macrobiotic, and she was healthy, and she said a cigarette had never touched her lips, a drink had never gone into her body. So what was the point? If I did all of this, what was the point? Because I still get cancer. My response is that although your healthy choices didn't negate you getting this particular cancer, it provided you with a strong, healthy foundation to fight this cancer and also safeguard you from other health issues. So in general, in both cases, whether they had a healthy lifestyle or not, we encourage patients to take the time to discuss this and just support them as they process their feelings. It walks us directly to the other component of cancer treatment, which is 100% psychological. The medical issue is, it, it is critical not to diminish that at all, but to walk directly into the notions of spirituality, religious issues, philosophic issues, friendship issues, family issues. And being a psychiatrist, people come to me, and what I have to constantly keep on mind is that the symptoms that they are presenting, important, but I have to look at what they brought to our meetings, their entire history. So if you meet people who have the full range of psychiatric problems, you're now complicating those issues with cancer and the discomfort of going through chemotherapy, it must add an extra challenge to your task. Your thoughts on mixing everyone's life, including the psychiatric stuff, before they had cancer to when they knock on your door. 
So sure, nobody's coming in, none of us come in with a complete blank slate. We have a life, we've had other issues. I always say that when somebody gets diagnosed with cancer, it wasn't like you were living in a silo and you had no other issues, concerns, problems, health issues beforehand. This is just now another layer that's being added in. When we think about mental health issues with cancer, some patients will come into this and will just see experience more as an adjustment phase. Often we would might label as an adjustment with depression or anxious features or both because our team here uses a crisis management solution focused approach to help guide people through a pivotal time. If upon assessment, if we learn that a patient has a psychiatric history that we find warrants medication or more intense psychological support, we refer out to our community providers. We ask that on our distress screen. So if we already know that somebody is under the care of a mental health provider, be it a psychiatrist or psychologist in the community, our first question is, does this provider know that you have now a diagnosis? Because sometimes there may need to be an additional appointment. Medications may need to be titrated up just to get people through the hump and the crisis of this new situation. One of the things also, using myself as an example, is that I know that I was extremely lucky because I wasn't alone. I had family. I had friends. I could only say thank you to them a thousand times. What about the people who don't have that support at home? How do they survive? Do you have programs that you can send nurses into the homes, at least see them, see where they live, help them structure their medicines, those types of things? Is that part of your package or is that more of the classic home health agency home nursing programs? I guess when we think about what we think about as support services, I can tell you what we do offer and what we refer out. Sure. We have eight social workers, six of whom are licensed to provide individual and family counseling. And again, as I mentioned prior, we don't charge for this. And we refer out if their concerns go beyond the scope of their cancer. We have different support groups. Again, those are available to our patients. We have different site-specific ones. And as we talked about prior as well, this support is available to the patients and their families. We have oncology-certified dietitians that are available to help them with that aspect of it. And we also have some wellness programming. And we had a lot of it pre-COVID, and we're hoping now that things are starting to settle down to bring those things back, like oncology yoga, massage, acupuncture, exercise, guided imagery. We have a music therapist and an art therapist that we bring on campus. So we did those things. But when you talk specifically about that nursing aspect, like almost like a geriatric case management aspect, that is absolutely referred out. And if a patient has a private policy or is looking for some out-of-pocket home support, we'll help provide referral lists so that we're able to help link them to those resources or the physicians will put in an order for those resources. In our hybrid kind of position, half of what we do is triaging to those tangible needs and the other half is doing the counseling and the support. How does your staff stay resilient to what they see. We recently had a an interview with people who do hospice, specifically during COVID, and how trying it was to them. It was exhausting. It's like when working with hospice nurses. They do amazing work. Not everyone is cut out to do that type of work. Your staff, how do they hold up to seeing so much pathology? In terms of the nurses or anybody in the building, working for a big organization, we have you know, employee assistance programs, so EAP provides some free counseling services. But in addition to that, just for anybody working here at LCI, now that we have such robust number of clinicians available, if a chemo nurse or even a physician, anybody just needs some time to process, we make ourselves available. And then when you think about us as the mental health providers, how do we re-nourish ourselves? I do host with my team. We have a mandatory peer support meeting. And at that that time, I'm not the boss. All of us are just clinicians, and it's our chance to come together, share difficult cases, and just provide some comfort and support and validation so that we can maintain our resiliency, as you mentioned. 
that is incredibly important because what has happened to medicine, and I'm sure you're seeing it, is that we have developed into silos. Dr. A doesn't talk to Dr. B. Dr. B doesn't talk to Dr. C. You never have that unification of, oh, you too, let's talk about it. Let's have a cup of coffee. Relaxing the tensions and the losses and the fears and the emotions of what you're going through. I like that. I, I find that very, I applaud you for that. That's very good. We love it. It's sacred time for us. <laughs> oh, I can well imagine that it is. You've been doing this for 27 years, I believe you said. Good for you. Can you summarize how different it is today? Is it because we have better medical techniques to control, or cure, or prevent cancer that your focus is a little different? How much has it changed in the 27 years that you've been doing it? Obviously, I'm not a physician, but just by nature of like living and breathing in a cancer institute, we see differences in the technology and the equipment. We see differences for after clinical trials of the way the medications are working and then the addition of immunotherapies and different things to help with eradicating the cancer or at least allowing people to actually live with cancer being more of a chronic illness than it having to be a death sentence. So we do see that evolution all the time. I mean, when I started 27 years ago, the radiation was still cobalt machine in some centers. And now stereotactic radio surgery and gamma knives and all sorts of new technologies and protons. From my perspective, even when I started, I saw much more of a resistance in terms of the traditional Western medicine physicians wanting to be open to the possibility of allowing some Eastern philosophies and wellness programming to integrate in. I'm a big proponent of not using the word alternative medicine, but using the word integrative that we can believe that we can allow people to use a little bit of a number of different things to create their own recipe for their own personal wellness for this time that they had cancer and then into their future. The addition of it being more of a standard to seeing massage and acupuncture and guided imagery and nutrition and exercise and all of that programming and that it's not such a stigma for people to want to participate or be involved in support groups, all of that I've seen as a wonderful evolution in terms of what has gone on over my career. One of the things also that I'm hearing from you is that you do genuinely try to get to know the patient, shall we say, in their home. Obviously, you don't go to the home. Understanding what it's like for them to be at home, that makes such a difference. So have an MSW degree. I consider that the best training I ever had. Medical school taught me different things, but nothing taught me like the MSW did. One of the things was go to the patient's houses, walk in, see what it's like. Is it clean? Is it dirty? That made all the difference in the world. I hear that what you're trying to do is larger than just you need to learn to live with it. You need to be stronger. But let's try this. Let's try that. My inclination here was to use alternative, but they're not alternative. They're integrated to other mechanisms to fulfill a life's larger, larger domains as they go through this. How busy are you? Did COVID slow you down at all or did COVID just give it a different flavor? COVID did not slow us down. I think we can all agree that this has been the most unprecedented experience of my lifetime. I think the word that is out there all over the place now that we hear all the time is that everybody needed to pivot. From the cancer perspective, we didn't stop treating, but we had to implement new rules in regards to how to maintain this being a very safe environment. Our patients are immune compromised. And so even when other places may still be lightening up in terms of their restrictions, we have to be extremely careful in terms of having too many people in the building. We have 38 chemo chairs, and then every single person is allowed to bring one person or two people. Think about exponentially how many more people are all one room together. After seeing what we saw with COVID, we had to really dial back on that. 
we still at this point have no visitors allowed with our patients here unless they have some special circumstance or there's some type of cognitive deficit where they can't be by themselves, which of course in turn has put a lot of extra responsibility on the psychosocial team to be there as their support person. So if somebody wants it and they're sitting alone in a chemo room for two to six hours, we want to make sure that we're providing them some company and some support. Of course, everywhere we go, we're seeing masks and that brings us challenges too. You don't get to see facial expressions completely. Sometimes it's difficult to hear. Sometimes our patients are hard of hearing and they can't hear us. Because a lot of our programming was suspended, I have been so impressed by the benefit of what Zoom can do. Instead of some people that might have had driven on a day that they weren't having treatment to come into the cancer center to sit in a circle and have a support group, now we have the ability to all visually see one another but still be able to have the safety and be able to all connect via Zoom. With the exception of our hands-on programs like acupuncture or massage, everything was converted. And I really think that we were full on the whole time. Our clinical staff was just like all the other clinical staff. We were there because we needed to be there for our patients when their family couldn't be there. If you have cancer or someone in your family is suffering from cancer, you need not be alone. You may have to do a little reaching out if you're not near a cancer center. This is really interesting, Darcy, because even though I am weeks away from my last infusion, months away from my last infusion, I still remember what it was like sitting in that room, looking at all those other people. I didn't know them. It was not my place to know them, but wondering how many of them were handling this okay, how many of them went home to a nice meal, how many of them were frightened because they were losing their money, they couldn't pay their mortgage, they couldn't see their kids because of COVID. What a mixture of things. The staff and the nurses, well, they were great. They were great. I gotta say, they were great. But I just hope other people who have cancer that they have access to this type of things. And if they don't, make a little noise, see what they can do about bringing it into their, into their lives and their communities. Darcy McNally is the Director of Oncology Support Services and Community Outreach at the Lynn Cancer Institute in Boca Raton, Florida. Thank you so much. An enormous topic. You condensed it, and this is what we want to hear, and please don't stop doing the good work that you do. Please don't. Thank you so much for being with us. From my perspective, is that they, if they have cancer, go knock on your door. 100%. <laughs> I try to see everybody. And- Sometimes you have to cast a line a few times before somebody takes a bite, right? Sometimes it's like they're going through this whole robot mode of I'm just doing what I have to do to get the job done. And once they finish, they're like, what the heck just happened to me? And that's when some of the stuff comes up that they want to start to participate or they need some validation or they just want to process what they had just gone through. It's an experience that none of us want to have, but when we have it, we got to deal with it as adults. I had colon cancer. Mm -hmm. The nurses in the infusion room were just great, just great. And I would watch them and I'd say, God, if I move that much in a day, I, I could eat anything I want. They're, they're <laughs> never, they never stop. My wife, she and I would talk about it. She wasn't allowed to come into the infusion room with me. Okay, fair. But I looked at these other people and I just wondered, are you okay? I couldn't ask them. It wasn't my place again. But I just looked around and I saw these people. God bless the nurses. Everybody, hello, hello, how you doing? Oh, that's a pretty sweater. I know it's cold in here. I mean, it was like alive. 
Although it's actually so interesting that you say that about not saying anything, it wasn't your place, and maybe you were so much more self-aware because of what you do as a career. But actually, I mean, and maybe it's more pre-COVID, I used to see the most fascinating kind of human dynamic happen where if you had your treatment once every two weeks, once every three weeks, very often you would end up with the same nurse in the same chair. And I saw a lot of that connection happen. The nurses would joke with me. They'll say, okay, now I'm going to stick this into your pouch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In general, I find that people that choose to work in the oncology community, if you can't be that type of person, you can't do this type of work because it's not fair. What can I tell you? Medical school taught me that there's still maybe one cell floating around somewhere. And so you got to do everything you got to do. Yeah. And the chemotherapy, um, there were times when I would be lying in bed at night and just would say to myself, I can't do this. I just can't do this. I, I, I have never been sick like this in my life, but emotionally I was. And it's been a good life. And I got my head together because I was not alone and I knew that. But that going through that period of the degree of fatigue and endless nauseousness and just everything was upside down. You know what I'm saying. You hear it all the time. One of the things that always occurred to me and makes me wonder is the, the types of fatigue that people with cancer have. What have you seen? Your thoughts. The first thing that we always try to do with our patients is really tap into like an idea of like almost like psychoeducation and of course validation because it's real and we can't take away the fatigue, but we can certainly provide support. We'll share those tangible resources on the best ways to conserve energy. So sometimes it sounds silly, but something as simple as, you know what, when you're in the shower, use a chair. Extremely hot water can make you more fatigued a bathrobe instead of a towel to dry off, and certain foods. So nutrition has a big role in helping with some fatigue systems. But we also offer educational webinars to help patients feel validated and learn tools to cope because it's not always physical. Emotional fatigue is extremely real. That fear, that sense of being out of control, some of those things that we talked about before, depression and anxiety, they all contribute to what we call emotional fatigue. And then, of course, that emotional fatigue will then translate into those physical symptoms. Patients that were super athletic and active often find that onset of fatigue to be even more difficult just because it feels like their lives have changed so much more exponentially. So that's where supportive counseling can help. And sometimes that fatigue ends up being the catalyst that patients need to help them get that support and also maybe to consider getting some of that additional help in the home so that might need some help with housekeeping, cooking, laundry. And sometimes, you know, we hate to ask people for help. And when people say, what can I do? You don't always want to have to ask, but I always say if roles are reversed, wouldn't you want to help somebody else? So let somebody help you because it will make them feel good. I thank you a thousand times. And oh, my if, pleasure a thousand times. Listen, have Sorry. a wonderful day, and thank you so much. My pleasure. You take care.